Better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof. Solomon on one occasion exclaimed that thought, and isn't that somewhat appropriate as we reach the conclusion, or at least near to their, that point thereof in our study of the Revelation? In this closing book, in all of the Word of God, we have seen so many amazing things, so many considerable things that have challenged our visualization to imitate, to at least visualize what has been described for us. But all the while, we have been led to appreciate that God incorporated these things into His book for a reason. And as such, we have been strengthened, it would be my hope, encouraged and edified, challenged evermore to appreciate the grandeur of the blessedness that God has awaiting those that are His own. Indeed, as we have looked most recently at the closing two, two chapters, parts of chapter 20, parts of chapter 21, we come this evening to the 22nd chapter in the Revelation, the 25th installment in the series of lessons. If I might do so, I might state that following tonight we have but one more lesson. I thought next Sunday evening, if it be the will of God, we shall review the entirety of the book, trying to summarize the major points that we've seen and to do so succinctly, trying not again to look at the detailed thoughts that we have done through the way, but what are the major blockbuster concepts, and to present them in one short period of time next Lord's Day evening. But tonight we shall complete the 22nd chapter. By way of introduction tonight, here are some things that set the stage by continuation from where we ended our study last Lord's Day evening. We came to realize that in chapter 21 was a description of that new Jerusalem, that new heaven and new earth, that place in which those that are the faithful, the saved, shall dwell forevermore. In fact, we may have been encouraged to even have a tear to fall from our eyes. We think of the joy there, not tears of sorrow, not tears of disappointment, not tears of agony, but tears of absolute ecstasy, tears of jubilation and celebration to appreciate what God has in store for those that are the saved. And isn't that the major hope resting for you and me in the Holy Scriptures? The hope of the gospel, Colossians 1 verse 5, setting before us eternal life therein. So it is tonight as we build upon that foundation, we noticed yet again some of the things that made that place so grand were not only what is not there, sin, defilement, iniquity, Revelation 21, 27, but what is there? God, Christ, the Holy Spirit, the redeemed of all the ages. This evening as we continue in chapter 22, one last set of reminders God gave to John and he also gives those, of course, to you and me. What are some of these truths to which we shall turn our attention tonight? We had read through verse number 5 last Lord's Day evening, so this evening we'll begin in Revelation 22, 6 and set before us the task of looking toward the completion of this final chapter in the Word of God, chapter number 1189. With that said, would you read with me verse number 6? And he said unto me, These sayings are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. We notice that the second word in the verse is he. And as chapter 21 had informed us, an angel began to speak to John. That angel was one of those who had poured out the seven vials, the seven bowls, if you will, containing the wrath of God. After those had been poured out, one of those angels entered into conversation with John. And we notice here this angel said, John, these things are faithful and true. 
reminding us yet one more time of the certainty of these matters that John had been revealed. Might you and I learn a valiant lesson from that, namely, never must we appreciate or look upon the things contained in God's Word merely through the lens of human wisdom. After all, some of the things that John had seen not only stretched his imagination, but would, but would tend to do the same for us. Dragons, beasts with frogs coming out of their mouth, these various bowls and bottomless pits with smoke arising therefrom, which smoke became locusts. Would that not stretch one's imagination? And yet the angel said, John, these things are true and faithful. So too it must remain for us as we look at any portion of the Word of God. In fact, we must allow God's Word to reflect upon the character of the things we understand from a human standpoint, not the other way around. Many things made to you and me appear impossible from human wisdom, and yet God's Word says not only is it that way, but it shall forevermore be that way. One of the greatest difficulties in the world, is it not, is when men substitute their own thinking for what God has said because they can't imagine that what God said is the way it is. But it is that way. The angel said to John, these things are faithful and true. But that isn't all that he said. Notice also in verse 6, The Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done reminding us of the sequence of the revelation. We had been told that in Revelation 1 verse 1, God, the ultimate author through His Son Jesus, to, in fact, the angel who in turn delivered it to John and finally to His servants. That sequence is rehearsed again here, reminding us that what John wrote was such that John was inspired. Have you had occasion to read some of the statements that various authors on occasion make, calling into question the inspired nature of the various writers of the New Testament, accusing them of being in error, accusing them of being erroneous and mistaken? Those who make such accusations do not appreciate the thoroughness of what these men wrote. John, in fact, was told, God's the author of that which you're writing. As such, you are an inspired writer. May we never forget points like this one. John and the other seven writers of the New Testament books were all inspired. And those 32 men who wrote the Old Testament books, they too were also inspired. It's fair to say as that verse closes, a hint is given that we shall revisit a few verses from now. These things must shortly be done. I'll invite your attention back to that point when we arrive in just a few minutes at verse number 10. For now, notice with me the next verse, if you would, verse number 7. Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. We notice now a shift in speaker. It was the angel in the previous verse, and now it's done other than the Lord himself uttering these statements and speaking directly. Behold, he says, I, I. The first person, personal pronoun, I, come quickly. The remarkable fact of it is, we notice the word quickly, hinting to us that the fulfillment of these matters we've seen in the Revelation would begin shortly from the time they were revealed. They were not awaiting 2,000 years for the establishment of some so-called earthly millennial kingdom. It was never that way. Jesus said, John, I come quickly. In the nature of the fulfillment of these things, they're going to begin soon. 
What's more, blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. Just as surely as though Jesus would come in judgment shortly upon the various nations, including Rome, to which this book included many statements, we do know that he, of course, will come finally on one occasion. That great and final resurrection morn, when in fact all the dead shall rise, John 5, 28 and 29. That occasion when the grandest hope of all the saints will ultimately be realized. Here we see, interestingly, blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. Is there not a very subtle but yet powerful reference in that thought? Would it have been possible for a person to keep the sayings of the book if the person didn't understand any of it? And yet, time and again, we may have heard statements like that. Revelation is too complicated. It's too complex. It's too apocalyptic. And perhaps one, 101 other reasons might well supposedly be given as to why the book can't be understood and that there's no point in reading it. Those who so think have forgotten that twice in the book a blessing was pronounced upon those that keep, namely obey, the statements to be found in it. It goes without saying that one cannot obey what one does not understand. Here, obedience was in fact inherently stated, wasn't it? And you and I thus should be blessed as we've studied this book, used its teachings to bless our lives. As Jesus made these statements, doesn't it lead us to say that two more times in this chapter, thoughts like this one will be revealed again? We've noted verse number 7. You might quickly observe verse number 12. And finally, verse number 20. All of which have similar statements to this one. But then notice with me verses 8 and 9. As we consider these, notice how they keep building. And this time the text says, And I, John, saw these things and heard them. And when I had heard and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel which showed me these things. Then saith he unto me, See thou do it not. For I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren the prophets and of them which keep the sayings of this book. Worship God. John directly confessed that he heard and he saw these things. John was not hallucinating. He was not on drugs. John was not in some fit of spirit in which these things came to his mind by human speculation or other human means. He saw them. He heard them. As he recorded these things for us, might we again not forget that he was told, John, what you see, write in a book, Revelation 1.11. And thus, when we read what he wrote, we, by our mind's eye, can see what he saw. Notice in this verse, he was so overwhelmed. He was so overcome, if you will, that he fell down to worship that angel that had revealed these things to him. And immediately, the angel proceeded to rebuke him and to correct him. The angel said, I am like those of the prophets. I stand on equal footing, if you will, with those who in former days have been thy fellow servants. The angel well recognized he was unworthy of worship, and thus he said, See thou do it not. There was a heresy that had become rather prominent by the closing of the first century. It was a portion of the Gnostic teaching. The book of Colossians, as well as the book of 1 John, has much of that idea as its backdrop. And yet in Colossians 2, verse 18, 
it was expressly said by Paul to those Colossian individuals, those Colossian brethren, that angel worship is not to be done. Angels are not God. They are not worthy of worship. This verse closes that we just read, worship God. Didn't Jesus remind us of that point too in Matthew 4 verse 10? In fact, on that third occasion, as he was tempted there by the devil to do various and sundry things, that one was to fall down and worship. And yet Jesus said, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Thus today, it is a tragedy beyond description. When various individuals, and they number in the millions around our globe, seek to worship statues, perhaps statues of Peter and statues of other notable individuals, be they popes or otherwise, it is a tragedy, for only God is worthy of worship. On one occasion, even Peter found himself in a position to where a man was attempting to worship him. In Acts chapter 10, that man was Cornelius. And on that occasion, Peter rather directly and quickly corrected him and said, Stand up, I myself am also a man. He wasn't worthy of the worship from Cornelius. Here, neither was that angel worthy of such worship. And in haste, we notice in verse number 9, he says, Of those which keep the sayings of this book. Yet again, an emphasis upon keeping those sayings and obedience to those things that have been revealed. As we move onward, notice as we come to verses 10 and following, would you consider these with me as well? Let's take verses 10 and 11 first. And he saith unto me, Seal not the sayings of the prophecy of the book, for the time is at hand. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. And he which is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. Isn't it a rather overcoming thought that in verse number 10, John was expressly told, seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book. That brings to our mind those thoughts in chapters 4 and 5 when in the hand of God was a book sealed seven times and one by one the Savior loosed those seals and revealed the contents of that book in chapters 4 through 11. We learned then what it meant for a book to be sealed. In the ancient day, that word the seal had upon it a mark of authenticity, a mark of authority, and only a person of sufficient authority could loose the seals and reveal the contents. Here John was told, do not seal the contents of the book containing the matters of this revelation. Why, John? Why might the angel have given him such commandment? Because, notice he says, the time is at hand. In other words, these things are about to start being fulfilled. The time is very close. It's not going to be eons and centuries and millennia in the future. The fulfillment is going to begin suddenly. Now note he didn't say that the completion of the fulfillment would also happen quickly, but it would begin to unfold and the contents would begin to be fulfilled very soon in the future from the time John wrote this book. That alone reminds us about the wonder that God can work through time in His providence, bringing about His will even in the course of the human condition. To note that fact, though, is to quickly note verse 11, which has been one of the most difficult verses in this chapter, admittedly. 
Isn't it interesting to observe what he does say? He refers to the unjust. He refers also to the filthy. He refers to the righteous and also to the holy. And every time he says those that are in that state, let them remain in that state still. We can perhaps easily understand the latter two. For those that would be righteous and those that would be holy should continue in that state, else they would fall from the faith and lose the reward of their righteousness. But what did he mean about the filthy and those that begin the verse, the unjust? It would seem that the words have the following idea or meaning behind them. That there is only one power which can overcome the darkness of sin. And that power is the gospel. And thus to that person who is unjust, if he refuses to submit to the gospel, then he will remain in that state. There is no other power on earth or in heaven that shall be able to overcome other than the gospel. Was it not Paul who, in fact, told the Romans in Romans 1, verse 16, In fact, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul then, what is God's power to save? Is it dreams, trances, human speculation? No, it isn't. It is the gospel. And those who, thus by virtue of living unjustly, or by living unrighteously, refuse to submit to the gospel, they will remain in that state. God has no other means of reaching them, according to His will, other than the gospel. That does remind us of a great truth even today, doesn't it? We must also reach men and women, boys and girls, with the gospel. We have no authority to go beyond it. And in fact, if we do, we are in error. We are not at liberty to change it just so that it sounds pleasing to the ears of others. We are not at liberty, in fact, to add or subtract from it just so that others shall be pleased. For it no longer is the gospel, if that's the case. That statement of verse 11, perhaps near the close of this last book in the Bible, reminds us of the final character of how important God's revealed will truly is. But with that said... Is it not interesting what quickly follows? Verses 12 through 15, in fact, tell us this. I'd ask that you read these with me. And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. For without are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. Jesus again speaks. We see a rather interesting interplay as the speaker seems to change from one verse even to the next. This time Jesus speaks again and again affirms, Behold, I come quickly. Though we did not emphasize it previously in verse number 7, it is a bit of interest to note the word behold. In English, we understand that an interjection, when it occurs in a sentence, has behind it great emotion. It has behind it great emphasis. The word behold in the Greek is an interjection. Jesus says, Behold, John, I come quickly. To grab John's attention and to grab our attention too. Reminding us again that Jesus' coming shall be quickly, using that adverb that he employs there, 
But notice as he comes, my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. When the Lord comes, there are many in our world who are convinced, they're persuaded, that it seems as though everyone is basically going to go to heaven. It ultimately doesn't make a great difference to so many how one lives here. They are going to be very surprised. I have every doubt that many are incredibly sincere. But he says, my reward is with me. But not only that, he says, notice interestingly how the reward shall be divided to give to every man according as his work shall be. Those who have not works to defend the cause of reward in heaven will not have heaven as their reward. Those whose work, on the other hand, has in faithfulness and in fervent ardor been in defense of the cause of Christ and to the best of their capability plowed in the master's field. Remember the parable of the tares, the parable of the sower as well. They shall be blessed with reward. Not that they've earned it, of course, but that they, by virtue of the promise of God, shall be blessed with that eternal reward. We, in fact, shall be blessed then in accordance to our work will lead Christ to bless us. Doesn't that lead us to appreciate the glory and grandeur of service in the Master's kingdom, in the great vineyard? Sometimes we sing that song about working in the vineyard of the Lord. That song has great meaning behind it, doesn't it? Or that song, toiling on, do you and I toil on day by day, anxious and excited about the thought of service for the Master? Verses like this one lead us to appreciate just how grand that thought really is. It is fair to say, though, that that particular thought is echoed many times in the New Testament, two of which would be in Romans 14, 12. So then every one of us, notice the very text there, will receive the blessing of God and shall give accounting of ourselves to Him. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, notice we each shall stand before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or whether it be bad. Those thoughts have propelled us to notice this is in the last chapter in all of the book of God. Do we not suppose that God wanted to remind us one final time about how important it was to be busy and active in the Lord's kingdom? Perhaps indeed, verse 13 summarizes it as well. Jesus says, I am Alpha and Omega. I included on the screen the thoughts that you see as I express those to you. It's a bit interesting to consider that he is indeed the beginning and the end. Now, you and I know in the English alphabet, A is the first letter and Z is the last one. And sometimes you and I might even say, well, everything from A to Z, meaning that that under discussion is complete, and that under discussion takes the entirety of the concept. Here Jesus says, in effect, the same thing. For the first letter of the Greek alphabet is Alpha, and the final letter of the Greek alphabet is Omega. And I listed, in fact, the capitals of both of those letters. The capital Omega looks a bit like a horseshoe. Alpha to Omega. Jesus says to John, I am A to Z, everything in between. There is no meaning to anything apart from me. We've seen even in this book that you take Jesus out of history and there's a void in it that cannot be explained. But you insert Jesus into history and suddenly the seven-sealed book makes sense. And all of human history weaves together like a golden thread. 
God's providence working through it all to bring about His will, the salvation of the human family through the blessedness of His Son. That's what we see in verse number 13. But notice in verse 14, we arrive at perhaps one of the most memorable verses in this chapter. Blessed are they that do His commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. It has often been noted that there are seven Beatitudes in the book of Revelation. We're familiar with the ten Beatitudes that begin the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, but there are seven Beatitudes in the Revelation. We have laid emphasis upon each one as we encountered it. The first one was in Revelation 1 verse 3. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and that keep the sayings that are written therein, for the time is at hand. The next one was in Revelation 14, 13. Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. The third one was Revelation 16, 15. When there it was in the aftermath of Armageddon. And we notice that Christ himself said, Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. The fourth one was Revelation 19, 9. Blessed are they that are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. How wonderful these thoughts are so far. Beatitude number 5. We found that to be in Revelation 20, verse number 6. There we saw the blessing pronounced upon those that partake in the first resurrection because on them the second death hath no power. Beatitude number 6 was early in our lesson tonight. Revelation 22, 7. Notice the reading there, blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. And now, finally, Revelation 14, or Revelation 22, verse 14. Blessed are they that do his commandments. Isn't it amazing how often we've seen in the Scriptures the importance of doing what God has said? It is a bit unique to note here, though, that in the Greek text, the phrase, do his commandments, is perhaps better translated by the phrase, wash their robes. Blessed are they that wash their robes. Does that change significantly the meaning and the idea of it? In Revelation 7 verse 14, those that had washed their robes were those that were saved and were numbered amongst that innumerable multitude in heaven. Thus they had complied with the teachings of Christ. They had done His commandments. To say those things remind us perhaps finally about this city. This is a picture we've seen once before, but it seemed appropriate to view it again. Notice there's a gate that you can perhaps imagine has been opened and you're peering through those gates into this glorious, beautiful city. Down the midst thereof is that particular river of water of life. On either side is that tree of life that bears its fruit every month. Notice, if you can see it clearly enough, there's golden things everywhere within it. That's the artist's picture of the city to which we're going. That's the city that we so much would like to enter in verse 14. But notice there are some that will not enter that city. In fact, considering that again from that previous slide, access to the tree of life is what we desire. But verse 15 says, outside that city are dogs, sorcerers, whoremongers, murderers, idolaters, and those that love to make lies. Now, we've often noted that the descriptions from terms like that remind us of chapter 21. But yet again, notice dogs. That's a bit on the interesting side. 
as we specifically consider the following. Those dogs are simply reference to those that are immoral. Those that have not an interest in those matters spiritual. Notice also later he says in that same verse, sorcerers. Those in fact that are involved in witchcraft. Those that pursue matters related to in fact sorcery and things like that. Whoremongers are the sexually immoral. Fornicators, various types and kinds as it's described in the scriptures. Murderers perhaps speaks for itself. Those who have taken life. Idolaters, those who've substituted something for the worship of God. They worship a thing or a person rather than God himself. Finally, whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. It's impressive to see how untruth is such an abomination to God. It is reminded of us here even in this last chapter in all the Bible. In verses 16 and 17 we read, I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, and the bride and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, Come. And, the him that, and let him that heareth say, Come. And let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Jesus admits that he's the ultimate author of the revelation, even in verse 16. For he says, I've sent mine angel to deliver these things to the churches. But isn't it beautiful when he says, I am the root and the offspring of David. That very issue to which all the Jews looked finds its fulfillment in Jesus. That reminds us of that passage that Jesus used to so confound the Jews of his day. Matthew 22, verses 43 and following. On that occasion, he asked them a question that they were unable to answer. And he quoted from the Old Testament to do it. They paid such attention to David. They considered him a great man, and yet Jesus said, How could David call him Lord? Well, who was David speaking of? He was speaking of the very one who was talking to them, Jesus. And yet in that text, they were unwilling to admit that that very one that was speaking to them was the Son of God. He was, and he still is. He is the root and offspring of David, the bright and morning star. His glory is so profound. What he offers is so grand. So much so that the Spirit offers a beautiful invitation in verse 17. The Spirit and the bride say, Come. Not only that, let him that heareth say, Come. And let those that are athirst come. Are you hungering for everlasting life? Are you thirsting for a place which the troubles and trials of this world are no more? The Spirit invites you. Christ invites you. The redeemed invite you. They invite all of us. So much so that verse 17 closes that there's water of life to be had. It's not such that you have to be born of a rich family to get it. It's not such you have to be born in a certain city on earth to have access to it. Throughout the ages of time, there have been privileges granted to those that are born rich. Those that are born in a certain family. But notice here he says, whosoever will, you can have it, I can have it, all of us can have it. The only terms are faithful obedience to the commandments of the Savior. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that glorious? Those all over the world have as much access to it as you and I. To say that is to say that the grandeur of this emphasizes human will. Whosoever will. This crushes immediately that Calvinistic doctrine of predestination. Notice, whosoever will let him come. It's not that those who would like to but can't. 
It's not those, a certain few, who have been pre-selected and chosen. Whosoever will. How blessed you and I are to be able to have that will and to come because of our enticement and our joy. Notice what's left in verses 18 and 19. For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, if any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this pro the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. I suspect that a, a renewed vision of those verses has now become clear to all of us. Maybe we've often read and thought about the statements of those, but now, having studied the book, let's notice more interestingly what they mean. First, he says, in regard to the book of this prophecy, any person who adds to it, God shall add to him the plagues written in this book. But what plagues were written in this book? That's the very ones we read about in chapter 16. What were they? More carefully, John, one by one, they were the terrible plagues awaiting anybody not faithful to God. They were ultimately overthrown entirely at Armageddon, and they were cast outside and never more to dwell with God. That's the plague. That's the punishment for anyone who would tamper by adding something to the book of God. What's more? The next verse, what about those who take something away from it? Those who have an interest to take their pen knife and cut out part of it because they don't like it. Jesus said, their name will be taken out of the book of life. Either way you go, eternal punishment. Whether it's discussed in terms of a name being taken out of the book of life or whether it's discussed in terms of plagues added to them. Either way, it's eternally disastrous. How important it is to see that this book is in its final form and it's not to be tampered with. Nothing to be added, nothing to be subtracted. It has well been noted that once Revelation was finished, this book in itself was complete. It never will need an appendix. It never will need a further explanation or a monologue to complete or a sequel to it. This book is it. That being said, notice what quickly stands before us as the last two verses in all of the Bible. Verses 20 and 21. He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Jesus yet again said, I come quickly. That's three times, as we noted earlier, that he says that in the chapter. But isn't it ever so enticing when the saints so exultingly refrain, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Are you and I so prepared that those last statements can be ours tonight? Ready at a moment's notice. Come any time at your will, Heavenly Father, through your Son. You see, the saints on that occasion, as they responded as they did, they were prepared and ready at any moment for the Savior to come. All of us must be ready as well. We do not know day nor night what time He shall come back. The Scriptures are silent on providing the sign by which that day, that moment, that year can be determined. Jesus, in fact, made that statement in Matthew 24. He said, For no man knoweth the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. Matthew 25, 13. Matthew 24, 44 to 46. 
it is the case tonight, we too must be able to say, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. The battle scars of this life may weigh heavy upon us. But having looked at a book like this one, can we not each say they shall all have been worth it? Once those pearly gates have been opened and through the gates of that city we're able to journey, therein seeing the ultimate finality of all the hopes and dreams that any Christian might have, no doubt we can all say how good it would have been for our trials and testing here to have sufficiently strengthened our faith that that city shall be our heavenly home. To conclude tonight's lesson, and in a sense to conclude the series, I've listed some concluding thoughts there primarily based on tonight's lesson from Revelation chapter 22. Revelation has been a very visual book, arguably as much so as any other book in the entirety of the Bible. And as we've looked at the various visions, the things that John revealed, we've been reminded of several great and prominent truths, one of which is that of obedience time and time again enforced upon those of John's day and enforced upon us through inspiration. We've also seen the grandeur of God's Word and how that it was the matter to which they were to be faithful. Remember the seven churches and, for instance, those in Smyrna were told, Be thou faithful until death, following the character of the revealed Word. That Word of God is, of course, tried and true. What's more, we've learned the grandeur of the fact of God's judgment. Blessed indeed upon those that are the faithful, but how awful to even try to contemplate his judgment upon the unfaithful. They are the ones outside the city, never being blessed with entrance therein. And finally, have we not seen that the Lord's coming is going to come? We do a great disservice to him, and in fact, we live foolishly if we live day by day as though he shall never come back, for he will. Oh, how ready we must be. Are you ready tonight? Are you prepared to say, Lord Jesus, come quickly? Is it such that your life is in compliance with His will this evening? If it is, you indeed are blessed. You know His power day by day as you walk faithfully with Him. But if you are not amongst His fold, if your name is not in the Lamb's book of life, tonight's the night you need to make that right. You need to make it so that He will indelibly write your name there and so live that He'll never erase it. This evening, we could aid you to make that possible. It's, of course, by the commandment of Jesus. Believe Him to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess His glorious name as the Son of God. And then, bury that old man of sin. Be baptized. Rise to walk in newness of life. If we could assist you in that this evening, it would be a grand day for you. It'd be a joyous day. It'd be your spiritual birthday. If you have done that, but you need to rededicate your life, perhaps you've done and said things that have brought reproach to the name of Jesus, and others know about that. You need to let them know that it is now your solid intent to not do that again. To let others pray on your behalf in order that you'd be forgiven and that you could be a grand example in faithfulness for them as well as for all others whom you may meet. This evening, if we could be of assistance to you in either of those ways, will you not let that be known in public way, even now while together we stand and while we sing?